Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we capture stories of the great lengths people go to to create their families. Today's episode is presented by Belly. Modern prenatal vitamins optimize for fertility, prenatal, and post-pregnancy health. To check out these vegan-friendly, dairy-free, non-GMO vitamins and learn more, visit bellybaby.com. If you saw Josephine at Lurie with her family today, you may think she had no issues trying to conceive. She has five kids and twins on the way. But Josephine's path to parenthood has been anything but straight or simple. Multiple IVF rounds, late-term pregnancy loss, international adoption, and surrogacy are all part of her family's story. And each chapter of her family-building journey, which is still unfolding now, has its own story, with plenty of unexpected twists and turns, beautiful and unexpected surprises, and life lessons, which we will get into today. I was talking to this support group for women who were in the midst of adopting or pursuing surrogacy. And one of them asked me, you know, how my children interact with one another because their backgrounds are so different and how they came into the family. And as I was sitting there just trying to come up with an answer, you know, I look at my children and we've always been very open and honest with their life story and how they've come into the family. And so everyone knows that everyone comes into the family in a different way. And everyone is just so loving and accepting of it. As an expert in meditation and mindfulness, Josephine also works to help others overcome adversity. There's certainly a lot to discuss, and I'm so happy to chat with you, Josephine. Welcome to the Pregnant Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to speak with you, Andrea. You know, what I love about your family story is that even when I booked you, I thought it was fascinating when I booked you to come on this podcast. And then you had shared an update just the other day that you're expecting again. So we we definitely have a lot to discuss. But I always start with this question, which is a very broad question. How, who are you? How would you describe yourself? Deep down, I am driven to be a person of service, whether that's service to my family, immediately my children and my husband, or to my extended family, or to just anyone that I interact with, and even people that I don't meet um, face-to-face or nowadays via Zoom. I'm just drawn to be of service, utilizing all the experiences that I've had in my life to improve the lives of other people. It's so beautiful. And I I know that about you and I really appreciate that about you. And so looking at the family you've built and you're obviously um, serving your family, as you said, um, you'd have to with that many people in the household. Um, Nobody would, I think, ever guess the backstories of how you got there. And, you know, I, I would love to know when you first knew you may have an issue conceiving and, you know, what happened? So my when my husband and I were dating in college, that's where we met, and he had a life-threatening illness. And because of that, you know, we went through a year of fighting that illness. And we knew that the moment that we wanted to create our family, we would have to go straight into IVF. So when I look, and I always am trying to 
look at silver linings and looking at the positive side of things, uh, when I hear other women's stories about how long it's taken them to get to a point where they can actually do some type of assisted reproductive therapy, they usually have to go through such a long process. So in that regard, I feel so fortunate that we knew right away that this was what we had to do. And I didn't have to go through all those many years, all those steps of trying to figure out what our issue was. So we went straight into IVF ICSI. And we did that for a number of years without it working. When it wasn't working, were were you surprised by that? Because I imagine you had stress enough with what was happening probably in your home life with your husband. And then you thought, okay, this is a hard step, but it's a necessary step and it'll work. When it didn't work, what, what happened? Like, what did you think? Did you do more testing? Did you start to question if you could keep going? Take us back to that. Yeah, and in talking with many other women who've gone through fertility challenges and my own clients, what I hear often and and I thought I was alone in this, but they go into assisted reproductive therapy kind of naively thinking that okay, well I've tried for this long and so now I'm going to go into this um this, whether it's IUI, IVF, and it should guarantee me a baby. And so that's kind of what I thought about going into it. I didn't go in with any sort of nervousness. I just really like was so optimistic going into it. And when it started to not happen, I was doing back-to-back cycles. When it wasn't happening, it was, it was like, it was a blow to just my psyche because I wasn't prepared for that. And the more and more we progressed with the cycles, the more defeating it was. And the more it started to really impact my mental wellness and how I looked at myself. You know, I felt I started to look inwards and wonder, you know, if there was something wrong with me because I wasn't able to to work with science. My body wasn't able to work with science to create a child. And so you start to question your worth and your self-esteem starts to plummet. And so it really, for me, became this, um, this internal, mental, emotional sort of battlefield, not just this physical, the physical aspect of things. That's so true. And I and we always say that at Pregnish too. It's a mental, emotional, relational, spiritual, financial. It's a journey that hits you on every level. And I think people who haven't been through that don't always understand how much it impacts your whole life. We are all more than our infertility, which is why I'm glad that you even acknowledged um, at the beginning of this that there's there's more to your story than that. And yet it's so all encompassing when you're going through it that it's hard to see past it. Uh, and and you're very right that I think the promise of the first treatment working is something a lot of us go into it, myself included, thinking very optimistically, this is it, this is the answer. And then just being completely overwhelmed and confused. So when you did get pregnant, finally from IVF. At what point was that in your journey and what happened with that uh, chapter? Yep. We, you know, we stuck with this, the first reproductive center. And I find that many people also feel this way. They feel like they can't 
move on, that they should just stick with the place that they're with because they've invested so much time and effort and money into a place. And it's scary to think about having to start over. And when you move over to a new facility, it feels like that, it feels like you're taking a step back because now you have to start completely new with a new doctor, with a new facility. But in fact, you know, you were, you're actually perhaps moving forward because you are now getting a whole new fresh perspective, a whole new way of approaching your cycle. And so that's what I needed. It finally took me two years to realize that this wasn't working for me for many reasons. And we did the research, which we hadn't done initially. We hadn't done a really thorough um sort of look at all of our available options in the area. And so this time we did, and we found a great place. It was a completely different experience. It was um, it was a smaller uh, private um, practice versus the initial one, which was through a big name hospital in Boston. And we, you know, we were able to get pregnant. I believe it was the first or second cycle with this new facility. And it just, you know, the biggest thing that I felt when I moved into that new facility was that I felt like I was a part of a team, as if they were invested in me actually having a child and me as a person versus just being another number. And almost being, I felt at my first facility, I was almost just a a bother to them. So this Moving to that second facility really made quite a difference on my mental health and just gave me a whole new fresh outlook. It was that infusion of hope that I needed because it was starting to wear out at that first place. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you know, Josephine, at Pregnantish, we launched an 1100 person survey called Why I Left My Fertility Clinic. And we are now in real time right now doing courses across the country, nonprofit to show clinics that relationships matter deeply at the this at for patients that success rates matter but relationships matter much more than they realize and that the good clinics are relational not transactional and so we've all you know I went to eight doctors over my crazy journey to parenthood and I think uh, what you're saying is going to resonate with so many listening who just even may still be working with a practice and it's just not a fit. And that's okay to admit. Um, When you moved on and you got pregnant, was that pregnancy, was how many years into trying and and what happened with that? Right. So that probably was about three years into our, the beginning of our journey and everything was fine. We made it into the second trimester. And after that, you know, that first nervous first trimester we finally felt like we could exhale and just breathe and relax into the pregnancy and enjoy it finally. And then out of the blue, my water broke at 17 weeks. And there was no, I think the worst part of of infertility is not having a reason, not having an answer. It's just unexplained. That word unexplained is just so devastating. And that's what was given to me for the reason that I had lost the twins in the second trimester was that it was unexplained loss. And, you know, there weren't any other real tests that they could do. So at that point, I just, you know, I grieved, I first grieved the loss of our twins and spent many months doing that. And I was finally forced into this position of 
really looking inward and seeing what I could handle. It was the first time that I really felt like I was given, I had given myself a chance to pause. Because as many of you know, when you're going through fertility cycles, it you're pressed for time. You feel like you're working against time. So you're just constantly going and you're just going on to the next thing. When one thing doesn't work, you go on to the next thing. And so that's how I was operating. And I didn't really take a moment to reevaluate my situation and what I could handle outside of that switch to the, the second facility. And so this time around, after and during that, that grieving process, I really had to ask myself if I had the ability to do it again. And it was one of the hardest decisions that I had to make that I had to be honest with myself and and realize that I just couldn't do it. I was exhausted. And the thought of possibly going through another loss, just like, I didn't think I would be able to survive it. So at that point, we had already started to look into other options just to have it as a you know, as a possibility. And we had looked into international adoption. And so it was at that point that we decided that it was time to pivot and explore other ways of welcoming a child into our family. Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine the devastation and grief you must have experienced and trying to move forward with international adoption. It's very interesting to me hearing it because you know, in the, especially in the infertility world, and you know this as well as I know this, when we have IVF setbacks or setbacks during fertility treatments, the conventional wisdom, the advice we get from outsiders is, well, you should just adopt. I mean, people say it as if it's a plan B and it's an easy path and that's the thing to do and just do that. Like adjust, which I hate that word just, but I know, and you know, there's no just when it comes to adoption. I'm sure no just with international adoption. So what was that process like? And where did you look? How did you start? And what happened? Yeah. And I love that you brought up the the word just because there are just so many, <laughs> I just said it, there are so many <laughs> words that can seem innocuous, but really affect people who are going through fertility challenges so deeply, just like that word unexplained. I mean, people just say it so lightly. And then the word just, it's said so lightly. But there's so many decisions that go into deciding what your best next steps are and what you can actually handle. So for us, in that vein, we were debating over domestic versus international. And at the time with domestic, I don't know how it is now, but there was that possibility that the mother could change her mind at the last minute and you could be emotionally invested into this match. And then at the very end, have the possibility of not having a child. And for me that after having just gone through a loss that felt very similar to what that would feel like after emotionally investing yourself into that process. So we decided to go with international adoption even though it was harder and it was longer and it was costlier, um, I just knew I had to be honest with it. I had to know what I could handle and I just couldn't deal with the domestic process. So we went internationally, we found a program that worked for us because many of the programs took 
on average, like two years to wait for a match. We found Kazakhstan, which had a much shorter wait. And I think it was in part due to the fact that it was a new program and it required you to live out there for a month, which not many people can do. And it also didn't give you any information on your match at the very beginning. So you had to go into the country blind. And that is a big leap of faith for people Already, aside from the fact that you've invested a lot of time with all the paperwork and the interviews and the home studies and all of that, then there's the financial aspect of it. But to go in there, go into a country not knowing was really risky. And uh, we decided to just go for it. We had come to a point where we felt like we had nothing to lose. You know, you get to that point where it's just like, I mean, what else could break me down at this point? I think that in this moment, I can deal with going to a country and not knowing what to expect and then just dealing with it when I get there. Because we've, at this point, dealt with so much in our lives that I felt like we were strong enough to be able to do it. And and that's the benefit of fertility. It just makes you stronger at every bend. And we really tuned into that. And that's what kept us going when when we were actually there, because it was a long process when we were actually there. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. I, But I think you're totally right. It makes us more resilient in ways we never dreamed and wanted. <laughs> we didn't ask for these lessons, but we, we constantly have to bend and adjust to unexpected twists on this journey to parenthood. So getting off the plane in Kazakhstan with your husband, what... What was that like? Like, what happened? I've never been to the region. I can't even imagine. Well, we landed at night. So it was crazy because we got there and you're not really given information except for who your handler is and that they will meet you at the airport. And that's what you're given. And so you have your handler, who's your contact person, which is the liaison between the in-person adoption agency and your adoption agency in America. And we get there, it's the middle of the night and we're looking, you expect it to be like America where you see, you know, the driver holding your name up and we're, <laughs> we're <laughs> looking for that. I feel like you should be in like a nice uh, airport, but it's not, it was dead of night. We don't speak Russian because we're in the Northern part of um, Kazakhstan. So that's, that borders Russia. And so we did not speak any Russian. We couldn't like even know how to ask. There was no cell. I mean, nothing. And I was almost at the, <laughs> and we were exhausted from the flight. And finally, like we waited there for the longest time. We finally found someone. It was our driver. And then we had to drive like through the country in the middle of the night. It was just wild. And that kind of set the tone for the whole experience, that whole month that we were out there, which was just to go with the flow, to like be as flexible as possible and to try as best as you can to trust in the process, which I feel like going through all the IVF cycles really prepared us for using those <laughs> those life lessons and those skills in this instance, because those are all things that you have to do when you're going through any sort of assisted reproductive therapy, right? I mean, you have to go with the flow. You have to be flexible and trust the process. So that is what we did that month there. It was, it was in it, looking back, I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we had the opportunity to actually be in my son's 
country of origin, because one thing that comes with adopting a child is that there are many times that you will be asked questions that you will have no answers to, and it breaks your heart. Um, so being in the country gave me at least the opportunity to be able to tell him like, oh, well, this is what it was like. These are the foods we ate. These are the types of people that we interacted with. Um, this is where we met you every day. And so at least I have something to give him from his background mm. and his culture, um, whereas other countries are kind of in and out, and, and that's kind of it. Um, it's so beautiful that I see you getting emotional. Um, obviously, this is not video for the audience, but um, tearing up as you were thinking about it, what, what was coming up for you when you were talking about the unexplained for your adopted child? Yeah. Well, so he's actually, this is so long ago, he's 14 now. And so when you're a teenager, and if you recall, I recall for myself that this is the starting point of where you start to question your identity and your place in the world. And that's just across the board with any teenager as they progress through life and into college. And for me, at least I had, you know, I had my, my, relatives. And I had stories from my mother. My mother would tell me so many stories and my grandmother would tell me stories about like our, our ancestors and what life was like in their home country. And that allowed me to connect with a part of me that I didn't really know was a part of me. And that gives you a sense of belonging. And it, you know, it helps you sort of get your sense of who you are in the world, or at least your backstory. And so I teared up because I think about this for him and that I don't have that much to offer to him in terms of that. What I have is the stories that we've created here from the moment we brought him home until this very day. And for hopefully for that to be sufficient right now for him until he's able to do whatever he needs to do whenever he grows up to to sort of fill that void and, and find out his own backstory or at least learn his country and go to his country. So, you know, as a parent, as you know, you always want to just give to your child whatever you can give to them. And so that piece of it always, uh, always hits me hard. <laughs> and you've given him such a beautiful life. I mean, they've given him so many siblings. How, uh, how did that happen? You know, now we see you with five kids, and then we know two are on the way. So you have a 14-year-old who was your first baby. I love reading everything I've seen on Instagram about him, but how did your family keep growing from there? Yeah. So, you know, when you have the first child, then you feel like this weight has been lifted off of you. And so it was after parenting him for about a year, we decided that we could give IVF one more try. And so that's when we switched to a third facility that was across the country and we became pregnant with twins. Pregnant with twins is how Josephine became a mom of three. But before we hear more about her amazing growing family story, I wanted to take a moment to thank today's episode sponsor, Belly Baby. Belly's prenatal vitamins are formulated to optimize fertility and prenatal health for men and women through all stages of pregnancy from conception through to post-pregnancy. Belly's revolutionary science-based formulation fuels your fertility to help support egg quality, promote hormonal balance, and increase your overall fertility health. We know that sperm health matters when trying to conceive too. 
Bellies for Men Prenatal has been formulated with clinically proven nutrients to help increase sperm count, improve sperm morphology and motility, help with egg penetration, and boost overall fertility. Visit bellybaby.com to learn more. So Josephine, you were pregnant with twins now. What happened next? So my MFM threw the kitchen sink at me and um, performed a cerclage to close up my cervix and put me on bed rest. And then I was able to deliver our twins successfully. And so that's how we added our children. And in that process, we froze a number of embryos. And every year we would get that letter of what should we do with the embryos and none of the um, options really worked for us. So with the idea that I couldn't carry again and us wanting to at least give some of the embryos a shot, we saved up for there's a big gap between our kids. So we saved up for about five years to decide to work with a surrogate. And we found a surrogacy agency through our fertility center. And that's how we found this amazing woman who became our partner to carry our twin boys for us. And, you know, every time I always say this, and it may sound cheesy, but it's true. Every time I look at my twin boys, who are now five, I always think of her. And because of just the kindness and generosity um, that she gave to our family for caring, uh, for caring our sons and caring them with, with such care and love. So that I get it. I I get it as someone who's an intended mama. Um, My cousin carried my baby and I totally understand the awe. Like I just am in awe still that this happened. And I, yeah, it's the greatest gift, surrogacy, but also there's no just with surrogacy. So right. for listeners who are have complicated uteruses or no uterus, I mean, that's, you know, people in our audience as well. What the process for you was finding a reputable agency and then being matched. How long did that take? That took about half a year actually, because there was, you know, it's much like adoption. I compare surrogacy to a mix of IVF and adoption because of you still have to go through IVF, but then you still have to do all the paperwork and legal like an adoption. So once we, you know, we entered their system, we were on a wait list. And that's really the longest part is finally getting that match and then going through the list and interviewing people one at a time, because you can't interview people all at the same time. You have to go through one person and then decide, and then they move on to the next person behind you. So that was wild because it was nothing like we've ever done before. I felt like I was trying to get matchmaked with someone. Yeah. And, um, it was weird to like, what are the factors that you use to consider who will be the person to carry your children for you? I mean, there are no set standards for this, this whole entire process and relationship was completely new. And there was nothing for us to just go off of. You kind of had to go with your gut in this. I know it doesn't, it's not so helpful, but I mean, you know what you feel comfortable with. And when you talk to the person, even if it's over Zoom, like we did, you can just get a vibe from someone and you can in their essay, just get an understanding of why they're doing this and who they are as a person with their own family. And that those were the factors that we had to use to decide upon a surrogate. And it was really 
a difficult decision. And then the worst part is that you have to decide within 24 to 48 hours because there are other people in the line waiting to find a surrogate as well. So it wasn't something where we could just, you know, really. Yeah. (laughs) I I always get a kick out of when people used to say to me, we actually worked with an agency that wasn't as reputable, it turns out. And two surrogates dropped out on us before my cousin offered to carry because I was at in year eight of trying to have a kid, I was, or year seven, I've lost track, but I was just done. I was like, I don't think I, I don't know how I'm ever going to have a baby. And my cousin saved the day, of course, but by, by carrying our embryo. But I know in the process exactly what you're saying of taking a leap of faith, trusting your gut and not having all the choices in the world. But people used to say to me, you're so lucky that you don't have to carry the pregnancy. Oh my gosh, you can have wine, you can relax. You can, And that's absolutely true that I could enjoy a glass of wine and not um, have the burden, quote unquote, of a pregnancy. But oh my gosh, what a what a not sensitive thing to say to someone, in my case, me, who had been trying to carry for seven years unsuccessfully, who had lost pregnancies, who had had endless IVF transfers. I wanted nothing more than to deliver my baby. So did you, were you met with those kind of comments at this juncture or by then were people used to, well, Josephine and her husband build families in all kinds of ways and we're not going to. We're not going to impose our own (laughs) opinions on this. No, no. People always say insensitive things. And, you know, I like to think it's in part because they don't know what to say. It's a very different experience that they are unfamiliar with. So the things that people say sometimes comes out well-intentioned, but isn't taken that way because we are very, we are the ones who have gone through the process and we have our own triggers and they just don't know. So that's how I like to view people. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt, but yes, still to this day, even with the new announcement of our impending twins and the use of the uh, surrogate, uh, working with a surrogate, again, I've been met with so many comments that have really hurt me inside and you know, it's, you'll hear things like it's out of convenience and that it's something that they can just do in the future and almost saying it just so lightly as if it were not a difficult process or a difficult decision. You know, every time that at least I remember with the very first process of legacy that every time she would update me on a doctor's appointment or an ultrasound appointment, I would meet her with, with, you know, happiness and with gratitude, but in the back of my mind and after I'd hang up the phone, I would just feel so sad and I would feel almost jealous at times that it wasn't me who was able to have this experience and that I had to be on the sidelines to experience this process of my children being born and just grappling with that feeling of life not being fair and also my definition of self-worth of being able to carry the children. And it was just a whole mix of feelings that go with, you know, any path to parenthood that you take. Just because you decide to do one path doesn't mean that everything else in the in the past has gone away and it's wiped clean and now you're going to become a parent and so you should feel better and so you know for someone who's going through and 
in the process of it or considering a different or alternative path to parenthood, just know that it's totally okay and normal to have these feelings while also being happy. I mean, it's just, it's just a whirlwind of emotions that go with it. It's so true. I mean, I think that it's, it's, it resonates with me for sure that just because you've moved on to a different stage or you're, you have your quote unquote happy ending, you know, I'm still wildly infertile. If we have embryos frozen that are healthy, if I wanted another child, now I have secondary infertility. I can't carry it. So it doesn't go away when you find a resolution, whatever the resolution is. And we've interviewed a lot of people on pregnancy who have embraced or tried to embrace third-party reproduction, egg donor, sperm donor, embryo donor, and losing genetics. You know, your genetic tie, which of course with adoption as well comes up, um, has complicated emotions. So I think allowing ourselves to recognize it's okay to mourn the loss of X, the loss of caring, the loss of your genetics, whatever it is, it's okay to mourn that and also celebrate what the beautiful baby that has entered your life or will enter your life as a result. And the two coexist in a way that break you open in ways you never knew. I, you know, I'm always, and I know you teach meditation and mindfulness and I'm a self-help author. So we're kind of in the same <laughs> zone with finding lessing, lessons and blessings, although we never want someone to say, oh, it's all happening for a reason when you're in the heart of grief. Worst thing to tell someone always. But we can oftentimes look back or even in real time, consider how it's changed us for the better. Can you talk to me about that? How has this shifted your life in in a positive way? Yeah, so I wasn't actually a mindfulness meditation coach prior to all of this. So I think for me, that was the biggest change that resulted from this whole journey was that I realized that there was a part of me that needed some mending and some healing. And it actually came about through an eating disorder because after I had the middle set of twins, I was training for something else. And then all of a sudden in my thirties, I became bulimic. And what happened through therapy and what I came to terms with was that a lot of the trauma that I had from trying to conceive was not resolved. I never really like sat down with those feelings and tried to heal myself and and feel those feelings and resolve them. Many issues of lack of control and again, self-worth, those were all embedded into this eating disorder that manifested. And so through that work and then realizing that I needed to really take care of my mental well-being, what led me down this path to becoming for at least for myself initially to starting meditation and mindfulness. And then once I got into it, I'm super type A. I just had to like take it to the next level and like help other people. <laughs> but this that's how the journey has changed me because it really helped me to tune into the other aspects of myself as a person. So it wasn't just the physical aspect and it wasn't the accomplishments and all of the other things, but there was this also this other part of myself, which was my mental and emotional well-being. And so that has become just a huge 
focus for me, for myself, for my family, and also now taking it to other people who are trying to, who are in the midst of their path to parenthood to be able to just take care of themselves throughout this really grueling process so that they don't lose themselves along the way and they don't miss out on life as it's happening. Because for myself, I would just, I was constantly going with the IVF treatments. And I mean, there are periods in my life, like blocks of time where I can look back and I just don't remember anything because I was just so caught up in, in that and not allowing myself to, to really experience life as it was happening. So that is, that's what fuels my passion. And being true to your, your value of being in service for Mm -hmm. sure. When you look at your family now and you're expecting twins again, which is incredible. What, what do you see? What comes to mind? Okay. So I'm really nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Completely honest. I'm just super nervous. But what do I see? Well, you know what I see is I was talking to this support group for women who were in the midst of adopting or pursuing surrogacy. And one of them asked me, you know, how my children interact with one another because their backgrounds are so different and how they came into the family. And as I was sitting there just trying to come up with an answer, you know, I look at my children and we've always been very open and honest with their life story and how they've come into the family. And so everyone knows that everyone comes into the family in a different way and everyone is just so loving and accepting of it. I just feel like they are able to look at the world in a different way than other people because they come from this just background in this family where they're accepting of all differences. And, and that's what I see and think of for my family is just this group of children that are able to extend that kind of empathy and compassion for others because they have done that within their own family. Amazing. And that definitely embodies the whole point of the Pregnant podcast, which is creating families against all odds, but in the most beautiful, unexpected ways. Thank you for sharing. I I definitely am going to follow along your growing family story. Where can people find you? They can find me on my website, which is jatlurie.com. And on there, I also have a podcast called Responding to Life, Talking Health, Infertility, and Parenthood. I have a book coming out in July called The Mindful Parenting Journal, And um, you can also find me on Instagram. I'm always sharing my story and also offering mindfulness tips for everyone. And my handle there is Josephine R. Atlery. You know, I love, Josephine, that you're soon to be a mom of seven and you're doing 600 things. I just have to say, (laughs) making me feel really lazy. But that's all incredible information. Thank you so much for coming on to the Pregnant Podcast. And listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of our podcast. If you haven't already subscribed, please do tell your friends, your family. This is not just a podcast about infertility. It's really a podcast about life. And thank you again for listening. Until next time.